however you find the earth coming into your body and coming to you through love and touch coming into your mind as a kind of personal poetry coming into the people the family around you as love and affection and neighbors and helping coming into your city as we treat earth better coming into our city in the form of all of nature during the lockdown didn't we watch nature come forward come into the center of our cities well that'll happen again we know how to do it now the earth has demonstrated it for us the fabulous unknown has a gift economy for us it's not consumerism it's a gift to you and me oh thank you so much for being with us today somebody somebody give me an earth hallelujah you're in a bowling alley or in a room with a computer wherever you may be on a subway with your phone give me an earth hallelujah the earth wants us let's want the earth back Earth, Earth, the following program is a rebroadcast. Dates, times, and events mentioned in the following program have already occurred. Thank you for tuning into KBOO Portland. Welcome to Film at 11 here on Community Radio KBOO Portland. We here at Film 11 like to discuss the films of Alfred Hitchcock a lot, and this week we've lined up three takes on his work. In the book corner, we have a volume covering Hitchcock's whole career with some amazing close readings, while Matthew of KBOO's Gremlin Time looks at the restless Hitchcock taking on yet another technical innovation. But first, Jeff Godsell on Hitchcock in America. When Alfred Hitchcock was lured to America from the UK by David O. Selznick in 1939, his first film won the Best Picture Oscar for 1940, thus beginning his illustrious career in Hollywood. Rebecca was a huge success and a terrific movie, as I covered in a previous program here on Film at 11. As masterfully directed as it was, partially due to Selznick's legendary control over all the films he produced, and being in the genre of the gothic romantic melodrama, Rebecca wasn't really a Hitchcock picture. But his second film, to be released later in the same year of 1940, would be a different story. This is London. We have as a guest tonight one of the soldiers of the press, one of the little army of historians who are writing history from beside the cannon's mouth, the foreign correspondent of the New York Globe, Huntley Haverstock. Hello, America. I've been watching a part of the world being blown to pieces. Foreign Correspondent, a spy adventure thriller, would be a kind of bridge between his British classics like The 39 Steps and The Man Who Knew Too Much and his later masterpieces like North by Northwest. An hour ago, I arrived from London by plane to meet the Dutch cabinet minister Van Meer, the key figure of European politics. As I waited for him on the steps of the Peace Palace, he alighted from his car and made his way toward me. Halfway, he was stopped by a news photographer who asked for a picture. Van Meer consented and was shot dead by a revolver held close to the photographer's camera. Bystanders rushed to Van Meer's aid, and I pursued the assassin through the crowd, only to lose him in traffic. 
Producer Walter Wanger had had the rights to journalist Vincent Sheen's memoir, Personal History, since 1935. Several attempts were made to come up with a workable script, and with each passing year, they strayed more and more from the original book, and the world kept changing, too. Hitler was on the march, and more and more, it looked like Britain would be next. Wanger was a strong believer in support for the English and wanted to make a film that reflected his political awareness. There was still a strong movement for isolationism in the U.S. and a general naivete about Hitler's intentions. When Wanger arranged to have Hitchcock direct, on loan from Selznick, Hitchcock brought his own writers to the project, including his wife Alma Reville and his longtime collaborator Joan Harrison. Hitchcock, an Englishman himself, had no problem incorporating more current relevance to the script while turning it into a crackerjack spy thriller. Hitchcock had wanted Gary Cooper and Joan Fontaine to star originally, but Selznick wouldn't loan out Fontaine, and Cooper wasn't interested in doing a thriller, so opted out. A decision that he later admitted to Hitchcock himself was a mistake. So Joel McRae and Lorraine Day were cast, and they do more than credible jobs. I know Van Meer's alive. That's the reason they want to kill me. I can think of others. I take it you don't believe I'm in trouble. You'll be in plenty of trouble if you don't get out of here. McRae plays a mediocre and apolitical reporter for the New York Morning Globe, who gets tapped by the editor who's looking for new faces to become a foreign correspondent. How would you like to cover the biggest story in the world today? Give me an expense account and I'll cover anything. Well, I'll give you an expense account. Okay, what's the story? Europe. There's a war brewing in Europe, and it's going to take fresh new strategies to get the inside story, he thinks. McCray's name is changed from Johnny Jones to Huntley Haverstock to better suit his new position. McCray is sent to London to interview a Dutch diplomat named Van Meer and see if he has any more insight into an impending war. Well, an ironical sign of your first one, a peace conference, a shadow of war. If Van Meer stays at the helm of his country's affairs for the next three months, it may mean peace in Europe. When Van Meer is assassinated, or so it appears, on the steps outside of a conference hall, it starts McCray off on an adventure worthy of classic Hitchcock. It contains a piece of information that would be very valuable to the enemy in the war that breaks out tomorrow, weather permitting. This is the kind of story I was sent over here to get. This is the kind America's waiting for. You should warn him that it is very dangerous for him to go about London with the knowledge that he has. The love interest is provided by Lorraine Day as the daughter of the leader of the Universal Peace Party, Stephen Fisher, played by Herbert Marshall. Eventually, we learn that Fisher is not what he appears to be. Everything about Foreign Correspondent is top-notch. Watching it this time around, I marveled at Hitchcock's instinctive knowledge of just how to make a movie. Hitchcock, like so many of the greatest directors, was a problem solver. And there are plenty of elaborate set pieces in the film, but what may be the great, greatest achievement is how he propels the story in between them. It's as if there is a right way to shoot every scene and he knows what it is. The bigger budgets and the bigger stars that Hitchcock now had in Hollywood simply enhanced his already considerable talent. He was truly on his way, building on his skill and reputation for the masterpieces to come. These set pieces in Forest Correspondent include the assassination in the rain on the steps, with McCrae pursuing the killer under the sea of umbrellas, the pursuit onto the Dutch landscape of windmills, one of which is turning the wrong way. 
Look at those sails on that windmill. You get used to those when you've been in Holland longer. I could have sworn they were going against the wind just now. Why don't you lie down on the wet grass and cool off a little while? I'll cool off in due time, but first I want you to do me a favor. I want you to get the police back here. The police again? It's a signal for that plane to land. And the spectacular finale, with a flying boat being shot down by a German destroyer. Call Bottom. Tell him we're being attacked. When she hits the water, the tail's going to be the best way. Special effects marvel. The plane appears to dive directly into the ocean, as we see from the pilot's point of view. The water cascading into the plane and overtaking the pilots. Hitchcock explained how this was all done with a rice paper rear projection on the Dick Cavett Show in 1972. The Criterion double-disc DVD for Foreign Correspondent has this entire interview, as well as a detailed description of how the effect was done. No small credit for this scene goes to set designer William Cameron Menzies. His set for the interior of the windmill also is just incredible, and Hitchcock takes full advantage of it. Some have said that the names of Hitler and Germany are never actually mentioned owing to the country's tenuous position in 1940, but that's not exactly true. They are, but still, they are more implied than stated. But there is no doubt ever who the oppressive evil is, and Hitchcock is clearly on board. With his customary wit, he gets in a good joke on those who are not taking the threat seriously. While under attack inside the seaplane, an elderly British woman complains of the inconvenience and how she will surely speak to the embassy. Pieces of shrapnel fly through the window, and she falls dead on the spot. Foreign Correspondent often looks and feels like a British film, with stars like Herbert Marshall and George Sanders. Made independently, Wanger was able to use the Golden Studios, which gives it a different look altogether. Hitchcock was the subject of some unfair criticism by some back in his native land of England for not staying and helping with the war effort, and even singled out by producer Michael Balkan for being in Hollywood at all. Hitchcock did visit England after the film wrapped, and on his return to Los Angeles, reported that it was felt that the Germans were going to start bombing at any moment. London. This is London. We have as a guest tonight one of the soldiers of the press, one of the little army a of historians... A new ending to Foreign Correspondent was quickly written by Ben Hecht, with McRae as the reporter giving a radio broadcast urging everyone to support the war effort. I can't read the rest of the speech I have because the lights have gone out, so I'll just have to talk off the cuff. All that noise you hear isn't static. It's death coming to London. Yes, they're coming here now. You can hear the bombs falling on the streets and the homes. Don't tune me out. Hang on a while. This is a big story and you're part of it. It's too late to do anything here now except stand in the dark and let them come. It's as if the lights were all out everywhere, except in America. Keep those lights burning. Cover them with steel. Bring them with guns. Build a canopy of battleships and bombing planes around them. Hello, America. Hang on to your lights. They're the only lights left in the world. It would still be over a year before Pearl Harbor and a year before Hollywood would be amping up its own propaganda machine a subject so well covered in the recent Film at Eleven broadcast on Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. And don't forget to drop into Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for more recommendations. Now we turn to Matthew of Kebu's monthly readings show, Gremlin Time. 
I want to take a quick look at a movie from 1953, Dial M for Murder. Now, this is a movie that Hitchcock kind of dismisses because he felt that uh, you know, he, he, the creative juices weren't uh, too full, and so he falls back on producing a stage play. And then added to that, uh, he has to do this in 3D due to the studio intervention. And so he adapts the stage play Dial M for Murder by Frederick Knott. And it's about this aging tennis player played by Ray Milan, who blackmails this other man into murdering his wife. And the other man is uh, played by Anthony Dawson. Where's the nearest police station? Opposite the church, two minutes walk. Suppose I walk there now. What would you tell them? I should simply tell them that you're trying to blackmail me into... Into? Murdering your wife. I almost wish you would. When she heard that, we'd have the biggest laugh of our lives. Aren't you forgetting something? Am I? You've told me quite a lot tonight. What of it? Suppose I tell them how you followed her to that studio in Chelsea. They'd assume you followed her there yourself. Me? Why should I? Why should you steal her handbag? Why should you write her all those blackmail notes? Can you prove you didn't? You certainly can't prove I did. It'll be a straight case of your word against mine. I should simply say that you came here tonight half drunk and uh, tried to borrow money on the strength that we were at college together. When I refused, you mentioned something about a letter belonging to my wife. As far as I could make out, you're trying to sell it to me. I gave you what money I had, and you gave me the letter. It has your fingerprints on it, remember? Then you said if I went to the police, you'd tell some crazy story about my wanting you to murder my wife. What makes you think I'll agree? For the same reason that a donkey with a stick behind him and a carrot in front always goes forwards and not backwards. Tell me about the carrot. One thousand pounds in cash. For a murder? For a few minutes' work, that's all it is. And no risk, I guarantee. That ought to appeal to you. You've been skating on pretty thin ice. This is really a very sophisticated uh, script, and it's really very chilling and suspenseful, especially when we start to see how manipulative Ray Milan's character is. And so the plan is that he would take Mark, played by Bob Cummings, who is her lover, that he's acting like he doesn't know that, and they would go out to a club, and she would stay home, where he had planned that she would be murdered. What movie are you going to? Oh, the classic, I expect. Will you get in? Saturday night? Oh, I can always try. Oh, but darling. Oh, now, don't make me stay home. You know how I hate doing nothing. Doing nothing? Why, there are hundreds of things you can do. Have you written to Peggy thanking her for the weekend? And what about those clippings? It's an ideal opportunity. Well, I like that. You two go gallivanting while I stay home and do those boring clippings. Very well. We won't go. What do you mean? Well, it's quite obvious you don't want us to go out tonight, so we won't. We'll stay here with you instead. What should we do, play cards? Oh, Tony, darling. Well, I'd better call the Grand and tell him we're not coming. Oh, Tony, please, let's not be childish about this. All right, I'll do your old press clippings. You don't have to if you don't want to, you know. But I do want to. Hitchcock was very impressed by Grace Kelly in this movie, and he would use her again in Rear Window and in To Catch a Thief. But um, Dial M for Murder, it, it kind of gets overlooked because like all these other great films come afterwards. And this is kind of a small movie. It's been redone a couple of times because it was originally a stage play. And it's 
really good example of how good a filmmaker he is. There's all these problems that need to be solved. How do you shoot with inside this room and still utilize the 3D effect? And Hitchcock is very smart on this because usually the established way of 3D movies at this time is that coming at you effect where they try to fill the space between the viewer and the screen with an imaginary object reaching out at them. Now, he does that in a part in this movie where Grace Kelly is attacked and her hand seems to be reaching out to the audience. But mostly Hitchcock brings you into this imaginary space that's within the screen. And so there's lots of low angles. There's lots of very nice lamps and uh, objects to art and trophies and stuff and interesting furniture that Hitchcock is able to use to make very interesting compositions. But still, it's not detracting from the drama of this manipulative man who is trying to just get rid of his wife because he's run out of money and he's no longer a young tennis player and he figures that if it makes it look like she's murdered then by somebody else, then he'll inherit her money. And so that plan falls apart here in the course of the movie where we get the dramatic tension of how does he cover his tracks and what does he do next? So um, it's a very surprising movie in how clever it is. Now, I must have seen this movie like 10 times before I was able to recall what the trick is, what the puzzle is in this movie. So I don't want to talk too much about this. But here again is Hitchcock, the sleight of hand artist. Because once you figure out what the trick is in this movie, you then notice how often it's brought to your attention along with other items. As we've said before, the objects tell the story, especially like the scissors and the keys and the handbags and the gloves and stuff. And so this is Dial M for Murder. I think maybe there's a HD version of it in 3D, but Hitchcock shot it knowing that 3D was just a fad and he shot it so that it could be shown flat. And it was a very successful movie in its day. So Ray Milan, Grace Kelly, Bob Cummings, John Williams, dial him for murder. And you are listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Finally, we come to our weekly book corner, and this time around, look at a volume that captures Hitchcock at the nexus of Victorianism and Modernism. When the University Press of Kentucky first published Alfred Hitchcock, the legacy of Victorianism back in 1995. There was, as of then, no internet as we know it. Personal computers had not become widespread. There were not yet three wars, which essentially amount to one world war. There were no DVDs, and, and there were several hundred more books on Hitchcock to follow. But almost 30 years of these changes and critical studies have brought little change to the author's essential points. They remain as valid now as they did then. Professor Paula Morantz-Cohen of Drexel has one big idea, and then in essays about individual films, a great many little insights. The big idea is that in gross brevity, Hitchcock strove to mitigate the male cinema world with some of the principles of the novel, with its detailed relationships and attention 
to feelings and character subjectivity. The title is misleading, giving the reader the idea that the volume might be an elucidation of a musty side of the Hitchcockian world, of lace doilies, rigorously attended tea times, gas lamps, street urchins, uncontested wills, and corpses lying in fog-blanketed alleys as ineffective bobbies bark directions in Cockney accents. But the legacy has less to do with socio cultural emblems of the times than with the change in popular culture from woman-oriented fiction in the 1800s to the creation of a cinema that is a masculinist form that did not explore feelings, relationships, and personality to the extent of the popular novel. The bulk of novels were written and read by women, and then men such as Hardy and Conrad wrote them also but chafed against the restrictions that female readership or impeded by publishers who imposed changes on their books on the genre. Movies, on the other hand, were produced and created mostly by men, though women were a significant part of film production in the early years, and they appealed to boys and men with their comedies and action stories and little in the way of self-reflection. Professor Cohen examines about 18 films of Hitchcock in detail in 10 chapters. The films include Rebecca, Sabotage. He, she explores psychoanalysis versus surrealism in Spellbound, father-daughter plots in Shadow of a Doubt, state, Stage Fright, Strangers on a Train, then she considers Rope and I Confess, The Daughter Effect in Rear Window, The Man Who Knew Too Much, then The Wrong Man and Vertigo, the emergence of the mother figure in Psycho, and then going beyond the family nexus in a general defense of late films such as Topaz, Frenzy, and Family Plot. And finally, some thoughts on the impact of the weekly Alfred Hitchcock TV show. Professor Cohen discusses not just famous works, but also widely neglected films. Chapter 3 looks at Spellbound. There is little critical work on this film aside from a brilliant essay by Tom Hyde in the film journal Cinemonkey, and the range of her references are evident. So I'll share a long edited excerpt from that chapter. I'm quoting now. Fellbound, along with Shadow of a Doubt, marks the beginning of Hitchcock's unencumbered drive to reclaim for cinematic use a novelistic concept of character. During the period of actual production, Hitchcock managed to assert far more autonomy than he had on Rebecca. Although Spellbound is far from an unmitigated success, without Selznick it could have been far worse. Indeed, it seems that Selznick made valuable contributions not only to Rebecca and Spellbound, but also to Hitchcock's development as a filmmaker. His contribution can be summarized as follows. He steered Hitchcock towards strong domestic narratives, the Du Maurier novel, the psychoanalytic thing. He alerted Hitchcock to the challenge of the novelistic character by forcing him to be faithful to the novel and the making of Rebecca, and by assigning Mary Rome and Ben Hecht to the scripting of Spellbound, and he encouraged Hitchcock in a more creative use of the female performer by suggesting more close-ups of Joan Fontaine and Rebecca, and by the felicitous casting of Ingrid Bergman in Spellbound. Psychoanalysis was dubbed the talking cure when Freud realized that he could leave off hypnotizing his patients and let them use free associative talk to produce clues to the source of their symptoms. Talk, as Freud used it, was a therapeutic method by which unconscious information could be brought to the surface and made available for interpretation. In the gaps and patterns produced by talk, the therapist could 
helped the patient piece together a repressed story and, in so doing, effect a cure. In this respect, psychoanalysis has much in common with novel writing, and it is no coincidence that it appeared as a science at the time when the novel figured most prominently in Western culture. Novels, as they developed as a genre, moved from being vehicles for plot contrivance in the picaresque adventure stories of the 17th and 18th centuries to being vehicles for character elaboration in the 19th century. In short, this was a shift in the nature of story, from a record of happenings to revelation about mind and heart. The Surrealist movement, which flourished briefly in Paris in the 1920s, was an attempt to build artistically on the insights produced by psychoanalysis, but at the same time to break with the drive for rational coherence for narrative that psychoanalysis posited as its goal. Where psychoanalysis filtered the incoherent talk of patients through the mediator of the therapist to produce a story that examined the patient, surrealism sought to reproduce the sense of surprise and incoherence that the mind presents before such consolidation. As an expressive medium, literature was not well suited to the surrealist agenda. This was because the reader, accustomed to viewing written words within the context of a conventional narrative sequence, was always falling into the trap of imposing such a narrative even when it was not intended. As for the medium of film, it was too costly and dependent on a large market to be a major outlet for surrealist expression, because film had early on taken what Christian Metz has termed the narrative road, it also represented an obstacle to surrealism's anti-narrative drive. Pictorial art had none of these drawbacks. Painting was a relatively cheap and convenient mode of artistic expression and had the further advantage of not bearing the weight of narrative associations. Surrealist painters took the symbols and images that psychoanalysis had gathered from dreams and free association material that psychological novels and psycho psychoanalytic case histories had narratized to present a coherent self and scattered these about their canvases to produce a new kind of landscape. Psychoanalysis places special emphasis on the woman as unusually sensitive to emotional experiences. Many theorists, of course, have noted the sexist premise of this assumption that the male psychiatrist uses the female psyche as the ground for interpretation and theory building. Yet, because analytic talk presumes a narrative that can be circulated and learned, there is also a sense in which psychoanalysis provides women with the tools for self-analysis. The most innovative novels were written by men, but in schooling women in a complicated subjectivity, they eventually became associated with female power and threatened the patriarchal institutions and values they were designed to support. Women became novelists in great numbers, and they also became psychoanalysts. Freud himself included a number of women in his inner circle. The paradox of women's relationship to psychoanalysis is articulated and spellbound by Ingrid Bergman's character Constance Peterson's mentor, the Freud-like Dr. Brule, whose combined indulgence and dismissal of his former student embodies the attitude of the Victorian father toward his daughter. Women make the best psychoanalysts till they fall in love, he tells her. Then they make the best patients. When Constance starts talking about her love for John Ballantyne, played by Gregory Peck, Brulov tells her to stop speaking baby talk, the opposite of professional analytic talk, but precisely what a psychoanalyst wants a patient to talk in order to gain access to the secrets 
of the unconscious. The confusion that psychoanalytic narrative introduces in the positioning of the female subject disappears in surrealist art. The surrealist movement was entirely dominated by men, though a number of women circulated in the group as sexual objects. When the female figure appears in surrealist paintings, it tends to be represented in odd and distorted ways, often in pieces, as an objectified motif of sexuality. This can be attributed, in part, to the backlash against that feminization associated with Victorian culture. In the context of psychoanalytic and surrealist ideas, early entertainment film was a new kind of hybrid that tied together the strands of narrative and pictorial traditions. It associated itself with a world of visual surfaces, and yet it used narrative to tell a story. As Metz put it, there was a demand for narrative. The Lumiere Brothers' slice-of-life films had failed. Spellbound is a turning point because it is the first film in which Hitchcock grapples directly with the paradox of how to render interiority in a medium oriented towards surfaces. It takes a storyline that employs psychoanalysis as a theme and seeks to find visual correlatives for the psychoanalytic narrative. This explains his decision to employ Salvador Dali to create a representation of the protagonist's dream. I would argue that the effect in Spellbound is less successful because the moral ambiguity that the flashback leaves in its wake is less assimilable to the notion of male character than it is to the notion of female character. The problem, in other words, is less a function of Gregory Peck's acting than of the contradiction posed by the script between a highly charged psychological experience rendered graphically and requiring a complex self to support it and the need for the kind of simple innocence that the script requires of its protagonist and of men in general with respect to the working of the plot. Spellbound is an ambitious film because it tries to produce a male character of emotional and psychological complexity. It fails in this because the idea of male depth is incompatible with the ethos of classical narrative film, which relies on the active hero to propel the plot and engage the active participation of the viewer in its resolution. John Ballantyne functions in the film as a mystery to be solved and attempts at visual evocativeness regarding his character seem to get in the way of the narrative drive to unravel that mystery and to make it all fall neatly within the whodunit plot. In its representation of the male and female subject, Spellbound is an experimental work, awkward, overwrought, and just plain silly in places, yet it is tremendously rich in technical and conceptual possibilities. The film's central weakness, its inability to make the male subject the center of a psychological plot, would be readdressed in later films. After Spellbound, Hitchcock's plots increasingly turn upon the ways in which men are tantalized and tortured by a subjective experience associated with women. And as Paula Mranz Cohen and her terrific book, Alfred Hitchcock, The Legacy of Victorianism, from the University Press of Kentucky. Thanks for listening to Community Radio KBOO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next Friday. So until then, keep watching the screens.
are tuned in to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. KBOO is serving up a series of scintillating sounds to help get you through the home stretch of winter 